That's my threat. I do not know. I do not know nearly as many. And I think, you know, half of the time I've been here was COVID related stuff that mm. shut, like COVID kicked off, kicked off, kicked off. Uh, COVID, <laughs> <laughs> COVID premiered <laughs> like within three or like four or four yeah. months, basically. I moved in October. Oh, um, shit. Okay. And then, you know, so. Okay. The a lot. I mean, you'd be surprised the amount of shit that can go down. Even are you are we allowed to swear? I just realized. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. You guys, not, yeah, no no swearing allowed. Yeah. No, say it. Say as much filthiness as you you'd okay. like. <laughs> I just well because I get so many podcasts are like, and please be mindful about swearing, and I'm like, ooh, ooh this is gonna. I didn't know like that. hour or two of me being super self-aware and then nothing ever are, good. Are they are they hoping to eventually get on PBS? I don't know. Like, what is the attitude? Sometimes they're like uh like on hosted on radio. I don't know. I don't know if I think I'm not sure, but people have often yeah, okay. been like, okay, be mindful. And I'm like, I'm just satirizing like hoof and mouse syndrome, like, okay, but I'm gonna be cross-eyed this whole time, making sure that I don't swear. And so <laughs> get creative with things in the meantime but i i actually i i love uh hoof and mouth syndrome sounds like a very old-timey disease <laughs> like, yeah. <the> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the and i'm like no hoof in the mouth like because <laughs> centaurs with their horse you know and people are like wow if you have to explain it then it's not working but i refuse to give it up because i actually think it's very clever and it just is. because other people <laughs> that I'm like unwilling to let it go and I know one of the first rules of like writing or whatever is that like if it doesn't make sense to the reader then then you have to get better readers yeah but French post-structural theory you know so that I was always going to be like repellent (laughs) to the get-go to most people um you could use its more commonly known name, uh, equine, uh, equine foot and mouth. Oh, equine, yeah. But that, equine, like, that's no, like, it's equine consumption. That's what it yeah. Is. It's just like, if you just boof the situation, you know, but like, why don't we try and, I don't know, like, bring in some astrological nuance to stay on brand. And everyone's like, it just doesn't, like, if you, you need to explain the context to it, otherwise we think that it's that, 
disease that kids get or something from like hanging out with livestock. Is that actually how the hoof and mouth? I don't even know. I just revealed how little I know about the things that actually matter to existing in the world. No, I I, I actually don't know, but I'm just going to scrap that one from my mind and go with yours because I think I prefer yours so much more. Thank you. Yeah, it's when it's when someone has a Sagittarius placement that is prominent and then uh, results in them often saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment. And the, there's a key here that has to do with the fact that as you are saying the thing, you already know you shouldn't be saying it and you cannot stop it. It is a train flying off the tracks. You just got to go with it. No one's happy. No one's comfortable. Everyone's going to tough it out together. Everyone's going to try and survive it. Pretty good segue into rapidness, actually. You just got to adjust. It's a little uneasy. And it also involves with like consuming something of your own self, right? In, in its own way. See, I synthesized it. I brought it, I brought back a constellated meaning a little bit. It can be done. And yeah, I'm still talking and I can't stop. And that's open mouth. <laughs> well, wow, I love, I, I love teaching I, by example. It's really funny. Like I'm hearing you like actually pull this back together. Like, and I was like, oh my God, I used to have that superpower when I was younger. I think it's, I don't know what that's about, but like. I used to have that ability and I don't, I don't talk that way anymore, but like I'm watching it happen and I'm like, she's going to do it. She's going to, yes, it made sense. <laughs> this is, that was the feedback I got from an, an uh, undergrad, a double majored in philosophy and English. And my number one feedback I got from my philosophy professors were like, first three quarters of your paper, we were like, how, what, how is this going to, and then the last quarter of it, you brought it all together. And like, we wish we could poke a hole in it, but it works and we do not understand. And it is such a metaphor for my career right now where people are like, don't know how you pulled in the psychoanalysis and the post-structural philosophy and the witchcraft and the astrology. None of these things should like all to work. Like many of them cancel each other out, but it seems to work. And I'm like, Haha, I fooled you again. I don't know where the superpower comes from either. I don't even know if it's a superpower as much as maybe it's a survival skill. Uh, maybe it's like an ADHD survival skill of being like, I love all of these things and now I have to justify it. But well, I think a lot I, of superpowers are survival skills. I, uh, really true. uh, I'm, I, well, cause it's funny cause you mentioned cancer, right? I'm a cancer son okay. and like what you're talking about. I, I have a similar thing where it's like, oh, I want to do this thing over here. So I'm going to go 90 degrees away from it. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this chain of random tangents, and it's eventually gonna lead me where I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how literally every came into incipient. Like, like that's just how things are born, right? Of like, yeah. of like do to do to duty and down like a certain road of thought, and then like sometimes there's actually a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Sometimes there's really not, and you can you you can try, and you can you can do your best to force that. Um, but it, it's not the case. But a lot of times, right, it's everyone following their own weird inert threads of inspiration that catalyzes something meaningful. And you really don't know until it's meaningful or if it's meaningful until like other people have responded to it as such. Mm. And then you're like, I fooled them. <laughs> like, oh, my God, it worked. One day they will see me for like for whatever madman I am. But for right now, it's working, and I'm just going to keep role-playing confidence in it, you know? 
<laughs> LARPing myself into the reality that fundamentals <laughs> of, of certain chaos magic. I, I, I am going to make this make this a reality. Will to power. <laughs> I kind of I kind of always thought that was like like when I had that ability when I was younger, it definitely was like a, a, a semantics thing. Like I felt like it was kind of like lawyering my way out of trouble yeah. with my mother led into like how to be like creative in front of people and entertaining enough that I didn't get beat up for being, you know, different. Like totally. <laughs> it, kind it of also like... makes you a great criminal. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it could have. <laughs> it could have, yes. This is allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> I'll do, not implying anything. Uh I think LARPing towards reality would make a very good autobiography. That would that's, yeah, does that uh, feel does that feel like a good should I the new, new Patreon post live <laughs> LARPing towards reality? You came here for the stellar witchcraft, but really what you're getting is a how-to guide. I mean, actually, I mean, you could give it a fancier name, right? Like, uh, you know, the liminal drive toward a, a Thanatos witchcraft or something. And you like, really, the, the 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 praxis of it is LARPing your way toward reality. Which, I mean, everyone wants to talk about manifestation. That's basically LARPing yourself towards reality. That's exactly what it is, yeah. <laughs> But you bring yes. up the live action role play part, and all of a sudden, it's just, it's just not going to get you the the hits on your reel, you know. <laughs> it's like an update to fake it till you make it. Yeah, basically, yeah. Which I think is one of the best, uh, like psychological and magical principles you can have. Like, obviously, you want to be resourced uh, in something like re like real. Like that's how things sustain or build on top of each other, right? But also a lot of it is that, again, like that Kierkegaardian leap of faith that like, you know, the stupidest and the bravest thing you can do is to is to have faith because you can't prove it's going to work out or be real or whatever. And then therefore that sacrifice of of doing a thing that you can't prove is going to be real ends up being what makes it so potent and so powerful. I think spirits like to see us be willing to embarrass ourselves a lot of times as a mm. testimony to their their realness. and to actively look doubt in the face and be like, okay, I have this doubt and I could be crazy, but I'm going to do it anyway. Man, that's like the bread and butter of so many spirits. They're like, that's right. You might be crazy. Oh, we love this. Okay. We're going to give you what you want. Mm. That's yeah. It's, it, it's come up quite a few times. That's like the, the biggest barrier to actually performing magic is just getting over the, the, the feeling of being stupid. I'm yeah, just doing something stupid. <laughs> the self consciousness, which I think in so many ways is also like a really Western, um, like super ego. Like we are all the panopticon of the self. We are always watching ourselves, and we're always being like, "I look goofy in whatever thing I'm wearing right now," talking into the air invisibly, right, and like declaring these things that I can't necessarily inherently see a thing or feel a thing in this moment. And when you are like perceiving yourself in that way when and you bring that judgment and the catalyzing wave of like shame or humiliation or like insecurity into it it throws the whole thing off but i do think that's also so much of like the um especially something that becomes an issue in like higher education or i i talk about this a lot with my occultist friends that have uh, a lot of like an academic background where mm -hmm the need to analyze everything that you are going through like interferes with the capacity to be doing the thing that you're doing as well mm -hmm. 
And right. I just have not seen that so much with uh, friends from different, like from different uh, cultures and countries outside of like the Anglosphere where they're just like, yeah, we just are also not raised to be as suspicious of this thing. These were like observable traditions and rituals and rites that our parents participated in and nobody even questions if they're real or not. You just know you do it and it works. Or if you're in the right one or if you chose right or like, how do I know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And it goes to that foundations thing, like that you were saying before, how like building something up with a sustain in a sustainable way. It's like, yes, you want to like have that imagined glorified version of yourself. But to do that, you have to like really find out what's at the bottom of the totem. totally like, yeah. And you've got it's the spiritual seeker syndrome, too. Right. The moment you are like aware of yourself seeking or yearning for something, the moment there's a separation between you and that thing and I think a lot of times the ability to like surrender to the performance of faith or belief is is such a relinquishing of like the control we hold on to in order to like be like, I am a sane human being. And no matter what someone might think about me doing this magical act, like I I am can prove, you know, that I am still sane. There's a, and I mean, to be fair, the extreme of like not having any doubt is also really, really bad. Like we have seen time and time again, that like cult leaders being a really good example of what like total zealotous belief and fealty in, into faith can like inculcate. And that is really uh, often quite dangerous. But the, what is the middle way, right? Like what, if we have the two wolves inside of ourselves of like, I am the most sorcerous sorcerer to have sorcered and ensorcelled anything in my life. And like, wow this is embarrassing i am standing here naked in the woods at midnight and it's cold and even the owls are laughing at me right like we have those two wolves inside of ourselves what is the third wolf is it even a wolf anymore i lost the whole thread of where i was going with this but now i'm feeling a need to really stick the landing I, i i think i think what you do is you end up getting some crazy glue and gluing one wolf to the back of the other wolf yeah, just oh letting my, them. My God. <laughs> what is that? Is it Hellraiser Five, where there's the Cenobite that had, or is it Four, where there's the the Cenobite that is the two people fused together? Like they all blur together. Anything after three that, slash that four might starts be to blur. Three, they get real bad after three <laughs> or three actually going on, but. My, uh, my partner and I decided to rewatch all of them recently because I'm doing some Hellraiser stuff behind the scenes. Uh, and we, I mean, one, so good. Two, so good. Three, arguably, I think one of my favorites and probably the best explorations of witchcraft as far as Pinhead's dialogue within it. Mm. Four, still was into, but what was it? Five, we recently was it is five the one where he's the detective or something oh god i don't know okay, i don't and they one just of, start one of them they go into space like i can't <laughs> i like the space one i think that's the fourth one the lemarchand's uh the one where they do the origin story right where you also oh, yeah. have, like the french puzzle box maker but then it's also splitting to like, like different cutting times. Into scenes in deep space with his descendant I yeah. like that one. And maybe I actually like five too. Maybe it's six. I don't know. One of them that we're about to rewatch too is I think the seventh where it's like the Matrix. Hellraiser <laughs> one. Like pixelated green thing. And, it, and I'm like, I can't wait. Some of them are like bad in a really good way. Mm. 
Yeah. And then one of the ones we just watched was like bad in a almost unwatchable, like we had to turn it off kind of way. Like we forced our way through it, but it took multiple nights and a lot of like having to look at your phone to as like a survival mechanism because you couldn't like exist in that world. It was so, but I think it was also the one to be fair where they had cowboy Cenobites. Uh, (laughs) I missed that one. Ranch scene or something when he when the protagonist who of course because it's Hellraiser is also an antagonist right is like having to try and confront the international kingpin of this this thing or whatever and uh, yeah there's a whole there's a whole scene where they're like all of a sudden out of nowhere it's just like cowboys. And they're all gambling and, and a shady den. And outside there's these white clad pseudo Cenobites with cowboy hats. And it's just a whole, I mean, I, I love the uh, innovation, the, the yearning and the desire to express constantly new atrocities through like the lived practice of Hellraiser by literally <laughs> making you suffer as you watch it too. I think that was very meta. That was like a very Derrida approach. Um, I've never seen any of the Hellraiser's at all. So oh my God. I was just like really excited to like drop that like 10 minutes into this. Uh, but I, I also, I want to just, I don't want you to correct me. I just want to go the rest of my life assuming that a Cinnabite is a tiny Cinnabon. It's yeah, crazy uh, that you haven't seen any of that because that's literally yeah. what they are. Yeah, they're is. just tiny cinnamon buns. Oh my god! the The whole thing was was actually funded by Cinnabon itself. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the longest running advertising film yeah. franchise. In number uh, in film eight, there's even a Auntie Anne's cameo, <laughs> uh, a rivalry with the um, pretzel bites <laughs> versus the Cinnabites. And it takes place in an airport, and you only have seven dollars, and you have to decide what you're going to eat for a layover uh, in Chicago O'Hare, and that's the whole plot. So, oh, I gave it away. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah, they they eventually do merge because it's the mer- merging of sweet and salty, and it's just it destroys the whole the whole reality. Then, yeah, and the then there's a whole themed uh, Great British Bake Off just about about that where they celebrate the totemic and triumphant fusions of the savory and sweet um hell bun <laughs> the, the special hell bun but wow, i really going as a person who has not oh, been able box. to do for over a year i'm just torturing myself at this point which again hellraiser oh my god it does everything comes full circle i've been trying to say that the cosmology of hellraiser is uh, and even the novella that it arose from, right? Clive Barker's Hellbound Heart is like the you can fit everything that you need to, you can get all the meaning you need in life from uh occult practices, whether it's mag like like ceremonial magic or witchcraft or whatever, all just from that, like it's there. And Pinhead, his dialogue in particular, is so perfect at describing so many different things. And it just, there's so much potential and just to watch it increasingly devolve into like these made for TV, like straight to home video kind of things. It's so painful. If I were 10 years uh, like younger and with like 9,000% more executive functioning than I have ever managed to conjure in my entire life, 
I would try and like rewrite all of them into being what they are. Cause there's like nuggets that are so perfect in all of them. And I think in, in number six, there's even this like strange exploration of, I don't know. It almost feels like, like a, a Euro trash horror meets, um, meets like a prodigy music video meets. She just meets I don't know, like this post technomantic explore i know there's like a lot there's there's just so many threads of goodness that are met by like we have 43 dollars for our budget what do we do you know so like everyone's always taking movies and going like or, or books and going like this is brilliant i'm gonna make a fucking movie why don't you do the opposite and like novelize like turn them into literature like oh my like God. really pull out and make books of the hellraiser movies in your interpretation isn't that what Fifty Shades of Grey basically was? <laughs> like, are you talking about fan fiction? Because I, as the teenager, already tried to make that a thing. Oh. <laughs> and let me tell you, it was not well accepted, and I got made fun of a lot. <laughs> it would be a book adaptation. Of okay. The- I think that happened for the Star Wars fran- right? franchise. Because oh, like, there are a bunch of Star Wars books now. Yeah, I, yeah but they, that's like additional story stuff. I mean... That's I'm, true. Like, no one has rewritten. You just, like, write... Hellraiser the book, but like change it into prose. Well, that's the thing. Hellraiser is a it was started as a book, right? Book, yeah. But it was like all yeah. the additional ones. Oh shit. That became it was like I I don't know what <laughs> type of computer cleaner everyone was on, but like Hellraiser five, a novel by Sasha Ravitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's worth Sasha Ravitch. In which I rewrite painstakingly all of the films into something coherent and so much so that it is no longer coherent itself. Um, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not even able to yet finish the book that I contracted to write. So I got to put that one on the way line while I finish the other thing out. But that's now a new a new goal, too. In the meantime, though, I'll just live tweet all of my feelings about things and then I'll try and copy paste them and do a living writer Google doc thing and be like, look an outline, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this project. Come on, Kickstarter. I kind of like that approach. Speaking of LARPing. Yeah. I have this theory that Twitter is actually just like, uh, like it's basically roundup for the muses, like because it, it harvests the seeds of ideas before they have the time to sprout. Like they just wither totally. on the sidewalk in your timeline. Well, and I've wondered, like, when I think about how many like creators end up not creating things because of social media, because we get the immediate like gratification and feedback of like the idea we have. Like you don't have to actually midwife the whole finished thing into the world you can be like i had this idea and people will be like oh my god that's such a good idea and you're like oh i don't feel the need to create it anymore people know i have good ideas i don't have to prove it by making the thing right like at this point i have to do this like sit on my hands thing where i won't i can't let myself even talk too much about the stuff that i'm working on because i know that i'll lose some of the incentive is it like incentive to do the thing if, if people have already like witnessed me in the doing of the thing, right? Like there's no, there's no carrot that's being dangled when you're getting some, I mean, there, there are periphery carrots. Like it would be really cool to have finished the thing, but if you're already uh, a person who like me is hit by like 15 ideas that you want to do all of. And then again, the executive functioning of like, a, a baby cucumber or something. Word. I the, it, 
I'm like, well, people know I, I had a cool thing in mind. That's enough for me now. <laughs> I don't need to spend 60 so hours, you know, creating it into the reality around me. But I'm trying to get better at that because I, I don't know, the older you get, the more the term legacy starts to weigh on your shoulders. So, yeah, yeah. it keeps all of that Twitter stuff. It keeps so the imaginal is there's already a very ephemeral quality to it. And that's just keeping it an ephemeral versus yeah. like anchoring it into the world. Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, and then you have the problem. Like I noticed that I would talk about ideas I had knowing very well that it was going to take me a while to complete the thing. Right. Because I'm someone who's like also sitting with clients for multiple hours a day and, and people really underestimate the amount of time and energy it takes to reply to emails or like upkeep a page, like all the, 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 annoying bureaucratic details right of being like self-employed or whatever and then i will have talked about my good idea but i want to complete it a thing and then i'll see someone else put it out before me and yeah. i'm like no yeah. and we get into really complicated um positions there where we're like well what is like intellectual property like do we ever really own anything and all the rolling bars thing of like the minute that you communicate a thing into the world it belongs to everyone else right like you relinquish some control over it there's a thin, thin line between like negotiating that from a place of um, uh, actually Marcus McCoy and I were having a conversation about like what it means to influence culture, right? Like if your work has an influence on culture, what does that mean uh, for how other people respond to it? And where does that line stop? But I think there is that also on the other side is that like, well, there's just going to be people that have more time, more energy, more whatever that are going to be like, that is a good idea. I'm going to, I'm going to use it. And then you're like, well, Fuck. you know like that, yeah. like that was kind of shoot and you can't even be mad at it at a certain point but like also that's on you right like that's on me for sharing the thing before i could could create it yeah it's i get it because i, I used to get so excited and like want to share everything because it's like this is great i want to be excited about it and build it and i think that like i thought that sharing it would like do that like even with with friends and things but it, it's something yeah. It. like there's something about like keeping the same uh same rules that you would keep with magic with your yes your art because they're the same like they're they're totally. both, they're both magic so like if you like if i get like i got like 10 pages into something that i was working on so i like read kurt a little piece of it you know what i mean yeah. like that yeah got its feet in reality a tree right so yeah, yeah. You, you get a little outside uh, uh insider validation as a treat Exactly. But after you've already done so much of it. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I think that you bring up a really good point too about, you know, people like with the temptation to show a really cool working altar, right. Or uh, to speak about some magical work you're doing. It, again, it becomes really complex when you're in a position where it's part of your job to keep people interested in what you're doing too, in that process of gestation. Right. And not wait for like every four months to be like, I've created a thing. Like you want you, it becomes part of your material security in the world to keep people invested in what you're doing. So you got to drop some hints, but like eyes on a thing changes it, whether it's, I mean, it, an idea and a spell in many ways are the same origin point, right? It's a, a seed that is meant to grow into something that is much more observable, much more conspicuous in the world. Um, and there's a fine line, especially I think with different types of magic where, the glamour of revealing a thing actually feeds it like eyes on it will inflame the power, especially if you're working with particular spirits that 
want to be witnessed in it or if it's a glamour or mesmerism related working right we're like eyes on it actually feed energetically the work or you but also you get all the eyes that are uh covetous or jealous or conniving and counteracted and that's you're right the same with ideas as it is with spell work and when you're trying to negotiate doing both publicly enough in a professional capacity you get stuck with a lot of like uh anxiety divination as i call it of like uh oh like uh oh what's that what, what's everything what have i done it uh oh okay 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 we're good or like ah you know back to the drawing board on that one but yeah it's it's i mean that i think that's the uh the value of like i guess a coven right is like having other people that are doing similar stuff so that you're you're informing each other yes and you're building off each other versus like just having a a plain audience like i think yes. there's a certain point you do want to introduce it to that broader audience but but having like a little collective so that the container can grow and can be shared yeah. and like absolutely yeah and things can like cross pollinate but you're not you're not leaking the energy from it totally yeah like yeah like a writing group or a band right like yes. no matter what it is you need like that group of confidants uh absolutely yeah yeah, how do you, because that's nourishing, right? That also feeds a thing and, and it can inflate. And then, especially with trusted people, they might be able, they might know the exact perfect thing that you might be missing or could improve or enhance a thing. Um, as opposed to having like planting an, an apple tree and it's just coming to its first uh, fruit, you know? And there's like a village of a hundred people that want to take from the, want to benefit from it when really you're in the position where, just you and maybe a few other people should pull the one fruit that is germinated and test it if it's even ripe yet, right? Uh, yeah. That there, there's so much of, and then there's, there's also like, at what point does our, especially when you have any kind of public platform, is the magic that we're doing a, a performative magic for the audience as opposed to what it usually starts off as, which is something for us, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a thing that I've noticed having to reckon with a lot of myself, like, oh, there are people with expectations of me and what I create now. And will they stay with me if I do a hard veer to the left, you know? And so many of the, like, I have had this, uh, even within the past couple of years happen in multiple occasions where I built sort of a, a reputation around the folk necrostrological, necromantic astrology stuff with the haunted houses things. And then I was like, well, okay, but I've been doing a lot of this specifically stellar um, and other than human spirit related witchcraft. And I, I want to talk about this because it's so alive for me. It's so, I'm so passionate about it. Will these people be like, what, when I veer away? And, you know, some people did most, if, but most people didn't, because I think people are really ultimately more interested in something that feels super alive in a yeah. practitioner than keeping to a strict sort of, uh, ideological routine of what the person should be created. And and I'm switching now again. I'm doing all the other things, but I'm veering more toward like some strange deep space, more uh, sorceries that have to do with like interstellar or deep space phenomena than explicitly like stars, right? Like what does it look like to engage with nebulae or uh, with black holes or these other sort of concepts? And I know that some people will be like, okay, that's again, weird and not the astrology content I came for. And some people are going to be like, I've been waiting my whole life for mm. someone to tell me about like what we can do uh, with a red dwarf, you know, or like with the antimatter fountain or those things too. But it takes, again, a great deal of faith. Like 
to put your own passions and interests like public in that way. And then at what point do I'm like, okay, now I've sold. Oh no. You froze. Come back. This seems like a good time to remind everyone that we are a value for value podcast, which means if you are enjoying the ad free, paywall free, long form discussions with interesting people, show your appreciation so we can keep bringing you these episodes. There is a donate button in the show notes. And thank you for your support. <laughs> the Nebula were like, nah, you don't need to talk about this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny whenever we talk about. Stars, some shit, or like space beings, beings in the sky. It seems like shit goes wrong. Yeah. Every time. I'm going to pee while she's, oh no, I can't because I'm the water back in. Fuck, I got to pee. Uh, oh, I'm just now seeing your Discord message. <laughs> oh. Boom. Talk about black holes once, and then the whole thing goes. We were just saying that, like, that there's there's times when this thing, when Zoom freaks out, we're like, okay, yeah, something's like, mm, we don't know if we want you talking about this yet or something. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, that that yeah. There we go. That's a really good example, right? Of when there, when uh, you're like, wait until you put the thing out. You know, now I'm gonna have to post it, post the project today. Uh, specifically, so the it, it's the talking about it doesn't happen prior to the releasing of the thing, right? So <laughs> now I know what I'm doing when I get off uh, this podcast. So I have to post the project I just did. Oh, th that's hilarious. Uh, we'll definitely wait. Like it'll be like a week at least. Great. Yeah. Uh, maybe we could wait two. We have two in the can, so we could wait. Yeah. What? You know, I could. I I plan on posting it today for Mercury Day anyway, but. Uh, yeah, that was a really funny, like, bitch, did you hear what you just said? Like, come on. <laughs> also, your own advice about this thing and then not actually hilarious. It happens every time we talk about uh, Sky Spirits. And then on the oh, show. really? Yeah. It's happened like four or five times, I feel like, and throughout the course of our 30-some episodes. But uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's having the group thing, you know? It's like... It's like if you're in a pile of dead bodies and you accidentally swallow a dead guy's blood and get some strength, and then you meet people <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, like yeah. hey, we actually know something about this and we can help you." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah." I mean, I uh, I feel really uniquely lucky that I've had friends and mentors in my in my process and my 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 observations of folks that have gone through and I, I really try to be that to other people too in the ways that I'm capable of right because I as someone who comes from a, a background of working in dual diagnosis mental health and especially with psychotic spectrum disorders and substance use uh in the unhoused population which was like six years of my life um the amount of times that I have seen and I feel like this is still a unpopular thing to talk about but I feel really strongly that like a lot of those are like incomplete initiations or spiritual emergencies that were not anchored in a community of elders that were able to identify what was going on. And so the person gets stuck in this space. Like, yes, I absolutely believe that 
uh, that illnesses and conditions like schizophrenia, schizotypal, you know, disorders, that they exist. And it isn't always a spiritual phenomena. And I also believe it isn't that easy to suss out. And I also believe that there are lots of spirits that are particularly interested in folks that are already predisposed or vulnerable in those ways. Mm. And I feel a great deal of uh, like heartbreak when I, I see something like that going on or someone that is like is clearly experiencing or undergoing some type of spiritual and emergent crisis without a, a supportive framework or connection. But someone could be like, OK, this is when we take you in to the room and we sit you down and we explain what it means to be other or like to be a witch or to be a whatever word you want to insert depending on cultural variant right and these are some tools that you need and here's how we're going to reality test you around what is uh, the inflamed chemical response versus what is interaction or engagement with spirits working with you as a, a conductor of sorts right like there's so many there's so much nuance there and I feel really consistently humbled and privileged that I've, I have been lucky enough to have people like pretty much, I mean, not when I was a teenager, but like by the time I was in my early 20s, I've had someone there the whole time that's been able to to support mm. support me and help me navigate it. And I think that's for sure the reason why that I am able to live a stable life. Yeah. Do you, do you think that there's there's a certain degree of like a psychotherapy underground that's kind of aware of this and like kind of doing it in the background like very very far in the background okay i love this question because it allows me to talk about freud who i love another one of my um, not so popular vibes but uh if you read especially there are newer translations of freud's work the the original english translations of freud's work were made for a very medical model approach to the psyche that uh, American psychoanalysts had at the time. So it took so much of the soul, so much of the spirit and magic that people that just inherently assigned to Jung uh, out of Freud's work. I mean, he named it psyche because he thought we were literally working on the soul, on the spirit of a person, not on their brain as like a chemical thing, but on a much more um, esoteric and mysterious and nebulous uh, sort of uh, inherent selfness, right? Um, and he looked at psychoanalysis as, and he called it the cure through love because he believed that it was a relationship between the analyst and the analysand, the client and the therapist, right? That allowed through the a sense of love, of empathy, of, of trust in the situation for them to be able to elucidate and explore areas of the soul that were trapped or stuck. There's something that is, really similar to a lot of, in particular, um, uh, Siberian shamanistic cosmologies and practices that we can see applied to the original Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, and it's different language, but this was the reason why Freud was laughed out of all the universities for so long too, right? Because they thought mm. that he was talking about spirituality, he was talking about uh, witchcraft and heretical ideas when he was, I mean, he was, <laughs> you know, he was. But through the particular medium of uh, of what the brain is capable of. And I don't think it's weird to even think about how the soul could be seated in a part of the body. We see spirits in vessels all the time, right, through, through, through loads of whether it's certain dirts that have been fed or minerals like talismans, right? Like 
why couldn't the brain sort of be the talisman of the human? Like, why is it so weird to think about a spirit existing within a certain locale and able to still move around it? And why upon that, you know, mineral or the brain stopping to function that the spirit would leave, right? That just, it already makes sense from an esoteric perspective. Um, So coming through that, I also think that there, that the work of in particular psychoanalysis uh, is, an esoteric art form to begin with. Uh, the uh, the successors that Freud had, in particular Jacques Lacan and the post-Lacanian uh, theorists like Luso Rigaray and Helen Sisu and Julia Kristeva, they all had such a, uh, I would call it like a witch's approach to, to the mind uh, that are important. And I think it's worth noting that there have been a lot of psychoanalysts specifically, you know, like a hundred years ago in particular, right? But even through the 20th century that already believed there was something more that was going on. And I think only now are we seeing that that become a thing that people can talk a little bit more explicitly about without losing licensure, right? Mm Because so much of this has been about how do I appease the psychiatric industrial complex? How do I appease the psychopharmaceutical companies? How do I appease all these blah, 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 that will allow me to keep practicing because they're not going to accuse me um, of of something, right? Like for believing that this might be a, a different or weird thing going on. We're already talking about abstract concepts a lot of times in psychoanalysis. And I know um, multiple psychoanalysts and therapists that are practicing witches or magicians, Um and there is even one of my favorite uh, recommendations here is Vanessa Sinclair. Um, mm. And she she's really open about her occult interests. Right. She holds a psych art uh, occult conference with her husband, Carl. And that's an example of someone who's like, I am this thing. Right. I'm a Lacanian psychoanalyst. And also here's all my occult and magical interests and leanings. Um, and I even just on Monday night did a guest talk for a container of therapists that were interested in about uh, in how therapy uh, and astrology could be utilized together. So I think we're going to see it moving more and more. I think it's always been there. And I think now is maybe the first time. And I believe that Saturn and Pisces is going to bring some of this forward in a more named way too. Uh, we're, we're seeing people recognize their, that there needs to be a relationship to both. And my graduate experience was in a master's in counseling psychology program because my whole goal was to be a therapist for magical practitioners who needed someone who didn't think they were crazy for seeing or working with spirits. Uh, but also recognize that like, look, if you believe in magic, you have probably gone through some fucked up shit or have some pretty intense trauma. Because if you believe in magic, you were so desperate for a sense of, of control or connection to the world mm-hmm. that you believed in a thing everyone told you didn't exist, right? Like that was your, you went to the last resort as a way of surviving. So I think we need to be able to hold both and we need to be able to hold both um, in a mutual generosity with each other and recognize that like you can have gone through extreme trauma and need to process your mental health related issues, conditions, et cetera, and not have those be seen as directly correlated to or caused by your magical beliefs or practices. That's not just they can't like that the magical beliefs or practices can't inflame the other. Like I see this happen with Goisha in particular a lot. Uh, like I'm not going to pretend like there are a lot of spirits out there that cause right or inflame madness. Uh, 
but by and large, I don't think uh, that it's predicated upon each other, right? I think that it does, or at least it doesn't have to be. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, that was a really long, long way uh, of, an- I hope, answering that particular question, but. Yeah, for sure. No, thank you. I, it's um, what the other thing that fascinates me. So like one of the things you were bringing up is like the the brain, like that's the soil in the jar. And I think that the the other thing that's starting to emerge in, in Western medicine and even psychology is this exception that the soil isn't just the brain. It's not just the totally. it's the entire body. Yeah. And that it's it the entire body is is sort of a storage system for memories and energy and everything. And that's Absolutely. it's it's starting to get like it's like all the pieces are there. It's probably gonna take some time before it all like Absolutely. emerges, but but it feels like it's we're returning to something we lost. Genetics, man. It's like <laughs> We have like, and this was something that Foucault actually talked about way before medical science was able to prove or validate it, right? That that the the memory, the trauma, the experiences, especially of our ancestors is li- literally stored within us and it changes us and it affects us. Um, and instead of seeing things in this uh, like vertical uh, or, or sorry, as, as opposed to seeing things in this horizontal procession, right? Like the year 1900, the year 1901, 1902, 1903, that we're actually working with a vertical process of things building on top of each other, right? And then those paradigm shifts happen within that particular um, vertical process. So things are moving all at all times and it makes time really linear that way too. And it makes the process of change, of growth, of initiation and transformation really non-linear. And that is really confusing if you're trying to do things from a strictly medical lens perspective where one thing has to lead to another time flows this particular way no you can't be actively in the space you were when you had that traumatic event when you were nine right but like yes you can we know that we know that what it's like to live in experiences that by and large we can uh can confidently say like i am not nine years old anymore but like spiritually i'm in that place that i was when i was nine right now at this moment and you know i'll go back to being where i am at 34 you know maybe in a couple hours when i de-escalate but we're all time traveling a little bit when it comes Mm. to these things Mm. that's pretty awesome it's gonna cut out on the time travel like what's going on here (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think we were all time traveling while you were saying that yeah yeah. (laughs) because uh, it because it is uh it is so true it like the the yeah putting yourself in that place like that that you carry that place and that time with you yeah totally. wherever you are um and uh the, and then there's also the it, it begs the question of like what future are you actually carrying to yes you know, like, um, uh, like when I moved to Midian eventually, like, what is that? <laughs> oh my God. The goal, the dream, the aspirate, what's your five-year plan? You know, like, being embraced by the tribes of the moon, you know, come on. I mean, that, that's like, so Nightbreed slash Cabal is a really good example of even what we were just talking about, right? Because Boone himself is in, and they focus a lot more specifically on this process in the short story Cabal than they do within the Nightbreed film. But like so much of the first, what, like 100 pages is like him having to deal with his, with, you know, 
the spoiler alert, like serial killer evil therapist, right? This whole this whole time. Uh, and the mind game is there when he's actually having really profound spiritual emergence, like re- like felt sense remembering of Midian and what it means to be Nightbreed, right? And I just want to say, I wish that we would stop using the term muggle. Like we don't need to be using muggle to refer to non-magical people. Like if we want a slightly degrading term for non-magical people, we should go and pull the the night breed approach and call them normals. <laughs> I think that is much. I think that's much better. Like, oh uh, yeah, the normals. You know, like it sounds like an insult toward like a like a screamo band of the early two thousands or something. <laughs> I, I love that this movie, okay, so I'd never seen Nightbreed before. Uh, it was one of those that, that slid by me like a lot of movies did growing up. Like anything that was dark, my parents kind of like pretended didn't exist. Uh, uh, <laughs> and that's how we get you. <laughs> right, right. And, and yeah, no, it really meant a lot to me watching it for the first I watched the Cabal Cut. My wife and I watched it together, the long ass like three and a half hour version. And um, yes, it was. Jesus, okay. You really committed to it. I wasn't actually sure that that was Angel until he had the makeup on and he transformed fully. And then I was like, oh, the brow. I see it now. Yes. (laughs) But uh, God, it was it was amazing. Uh, I really felt like it was important that it was like, yeah, there there are different kinds of monsters. Like you need to learn this, how to discern this. Like it's okay. Like what you're saying about having that that profound personal transformation in the midst of it all. It's like you're learning like, okay, I am I am maybe I'm the knight, but this man is evil. Like this other yes. actual evil. Like there's this difference um, that you don't see really represented that often, I don't think. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's, it brings up this this whole um, exploration of like, when we say monster, what do we mean, right? Like the, the lot Midian is where the monsters live, right? And you realize of course, it's almost like a a, a tip off to the fact that like they're going to be the most likable characters in the thing, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just going to you're going to be rooting, you know, especially if you're watching Nightbreed, you're probably already someone who roots for the monsters in something to begin with. But yeah, you you start dealing with like, well, what is monstrous? Is it these uh, exiled tribes of the moon? You know, there's a quote actually. Yeah, that's right. I have a pull. I have a quote saved here um, that that is used that we're um god i'm blanking on her name right now but the one that is obviously meant to seem like the mysterious like from the levant or middle east or roma kind of like she wears the veil right she has the 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 smoke yeah the um the we're shapeshifters freaks the last children of some of the lost tribes to be able to fly to be smoke or a wolf to know the night and live in it forever that's not so bad you call us monsters, but when you dream, you envy us. And I thought that was like such a beautiful exploration too. I mean, I think this film is infinitely relatable for all people that have experienced some level of like marginalization or felt like yeah. outsiders or others. It's important keeping in mind too that Clive Barker is gay, right? And uh, I think that his experience of otherness already um, and to be writing more explicitly about these sort of issues in a time where it was less communicated or shared about as well is going to influence those things. But I think that for people that I identify as magically transformed and yeah. feel a sense of difference away from the normals, there's something that I mean, that's not to say there aren't those like inherently 
evil, <laughs> evil people that are in that camp too. But a lot of folks are like, okay, but people fetishize or also objectify or are desiring of these same things that they fear or don't understand. And how much is about survival and coming together and trying to connect with other freaks and shapeshifters, right? Mm-hmm. That you're like, fuck, I finally see something of myself in someone. I finally recognize something of myself and others when I've gone through so much of my life so earnestly and eagerly desiring of any kind of like reflection, right? Of any kind of connection, of any kind of like legitimization of the things that make me other. That is it really, it's, it, it can be extremely like the first time I watched it, I was young and it was super emotional for me. I like broke down and wept because it felt like there was an exploration in that in that dialogue and throughout the dialogue that spoke to that sense of um, sometimes internalized, uh, but oftentimes projected onto like alienation and otherness as well. Yeah, his the, the fact that he like what you're I, I, what you're touching on with him being a gay man and then expressing that in this way is what I think what gives it so much his his mythologizing of that and like that makes yeah. it so much bigger and broader and speaks to yes. like what you're saying like anyone who's felt like an outsider or a weirdo or whatever. Yeah. You feel like okay, I am a nightbreed. Yeah, it's not just it's not just the one thing. It's like everybody who's had that outsider group. And there's actually it's it's funny. I didn't even realize this, but the the dynamic between the psychologist who's this uh, David Cronen or Cronenberg playing like a complete serial killer nut job. Loved it. What a treat. I know it was amazing. And he has like one of the best masks of any oh killer. Oh my god, yes. Uh, But but what I was just thinking about is that like so there's there's a they speak specifically about pulling the skin away and revealing like that's the mask is like the normal that you peel that off and you reveal the monsters beneath. Whereas he, the psychologist puts a mask on totally. And he's, and it's, and what he's doing is he's, he's embedding an idea of what the nightbreed are, what he thinks and reflects and like, cause he's, he's empty. He doesn't have any connection to that. Absolutely. So, so he's he's turning into the thing that he's like projecting upon them. Totally. Um, yeah, I I'd never really thought about that before, but that's a that's a that's a cool little. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that sort of like inversion they were playing with in that capacity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah was, and, he, and he he's the real monster. Jesus is. Real. Yes, totally. <laughs> I was not thinking about the mask at all in the in like such high turn. I was thinking of it in like comic book turn, like. Like, Scarecrow, what kind of creature is this thing? Like, yeah, <laughs> how is it made? Well, I mean, it's that too. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's no, that's a really good read on that, though. I love that. I'm excited yeah, and, that you, yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no go, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. Okay, okay. No, I'm excited <laughs> that you've never seen this, Brian, because it's this is I I love this movie. Um. And it's uh, I didn't watch the cabal cut. I think I've seen that once. I think I think it was a director's cut. And the movie is janky as fuck. I'll just straight that <laughs> say that straight out. Like as a as a coherent work of art, it's a little it's very messy. Yeah. But for some reason, it's it's like you're getting this like shard of some much larger iceberg that's just beneath yes. the water. And I think that's. That's why I can't help but love it in all its fucked up jankiness and like weird plot divergence. And- totally. <laughs> and that's like one of the benefits to, I mean, I always recommend that folks read Cabal because you get so, like, there's just so much more and you get so much of the, um, the, the world building and the cosmology through 
through the way it's built, like so much of even just the beginning. I mean, I, I, I always argued about this, this film being about like witchcraft and initiations into the witch body. Um, a lot of that being based in the, the written version, because for the whole beginning part of, of the story, you're experiencing Boone going like in and out of these dreams of like bloody and violent scenes. And he's like, sometimes he knows that he's dreaming or he isn't sure because is he waking or is he dreaming? And there's so much of that too, that is like supported and explored in the folklore around witchcraft initiations, especially like the violent gruesome dreams of being cut up or being, uh, or being the one who's cutting up and like this inability to tell what is waking life versus what is, uh, what is your dreaming life. And, even even little bits about like they go into so much detail around when Pelican uh, bites Boone when he's in Midian mm. too in the book and it's like extremely erotic right if you feel like you're being transported into like this vampire he's like in 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 a strange ecstatic awakening right and you can tell in the book like oh he's been bitten like a witch or a spirit at this point has like claimed him has sired him at some point he is going to be in the thralls now of this initiation being activated in his transformation being activated. He had all the preliminary warnings, right? He had all the kind of the signs that have been showing up and even things that like Lori is saying in the book where she talks about uh, no matter like how unkempt he was, people were always attracted to him. Like he haunted them because he himself was haunted. Like this idea of like the sort of witch or vampiric mesmerism, like this, that people can't get the person out of their head, even when they, look like a, a mess because there's just something different about them and how he always would show up in sex dreams for her and other women even though he himself was like not in a place to feel like he could have sex with people which is like another thing you see in a lot of witch lore right like one of the big ways that it, that uh in folklore a witch was identified was like if they would be showing up in dreams or nightmares or in sex dreams is is vampirizing you in some way and uh and her always saying like he showed up in my dreams uh both wretched and beautiful right like that's mm -hmm. such a a potent exploration of those things but even pelican himself says like i made him i bit him the bite that mocks death so that for me is such an important anchoring and, and you get a lot more pelican like details in the book in the film you're like okay what is this like the who is the bully night breed, right? The ones always got something to say or is like creeping on Laurie at the end too. But there, there's a, a eroticism and an intimacy to the experience that isn't communicated uh, as well in the film. But I think makes for in the book much more of an explicit overt uh, witchcraft awakening because so much of that violence is uh, tied up in this like jouissance, like this idea of, of an ecstasy born from uh, a commingling of pleasure and pain that the body like, and the mind can't really tolerate, right? Mm. Like it, it, and even they're much clearer in the book too about the process of when he's shot by the cops, uh, and but he doesn't die, mm. and that also has like so many explicit overtones to initiatory processes too, right? These near death experiences where you're then because of that death and even like a spiritual death reborn as a, the monstrous other too. And then at that point he is, he comes back from that, right? He's been bitten. He gets shot. He comes back. He's nightbreed, even if he wasn't supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit of my, why, why the, why it's worth reading Cabal as well for some yeah, of the I, subtext. I, yeah. Well, I read it. I read it a long time ago. And I remember all the details. Uh, were you going to say something, Brian? 
I feel, I was just really interested in like getting all those backstories, so I probably will read that. It's so good, and you can do like you can. There's a really good audiobook version too. That um, this is fresh for me because I just re-listened to it on the plane. <laughs> so, so I know I do not recall this from the first time. This is all <laughs> I wish conjured to mind details so visceral, but it makes it. There's there's two really cool things about this too that 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 what you're saying reminds me. The fact. Okay, so. Uh, you know the the tribes of the moon and it's transferred and changed by a bite which yeah like i love that clive barker does this thing where it's like well the nightbreed are actually the source of these ideas about vampires and werewolves totally like, yes. like it's it's the, we're not going to talk about vampires and werewolves we're going to talk about what actually inspired vampires or werewolves we're going to we're going to go deeper and, and broader and like i i love i love his his way of going even deeper into the imagination it's it's one of my favorite things about him as, as an author and creator the other thing and and this is this is a uh another aspect of of initiatory experiences like you're talking about the one of my favorite lines is uh it's true god is an astronaut oz is over the rainbow yes and, and midian is where the monsters go monsters, yeah and and, and that that is also such a true thing with initiatory experiences because you, the world you were, you were in before and the yeah. world you're in after is so fucking different. And then you have that realization as like, Oh shit, what else have they been lying about? Yes. Like, or what else has been like bullshit? There's also those, those moments of like, Oh, like all these fucking imaginary creatures are real. And I just yes. met a few of them. And they also told me that they're like my ancestors. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. It reminds me, Lee Morgan talks about the idea of belief, belief, right? Like there's belief in theory that magical practitioners or spirit workers have where we're like, yeah, of course spirits exist. We know that because we do the work or the client work or the blah, blah, blah. We've been told. But then there's the belief, belief moments where you like experience the reality so truthfully that there's like, nope, it changes you. That yeah. like knowingness, that in the bones knowingness, where you're like, oh yeah, I knew this was little R real, but this is also capital R real. <laughs> like, and I don't, I don't move on from this experience the same person. Like, I am changed just by how this I have touched, I have contacted this realness like the the that this is true and those are i think in many ways what we we look to to sustain the practice in moments of like lowercase belief right where we're yeah. like doing the larp larping the reality right like this it is it is and we're contending with the doubt we look back to and one of the exercises uh in uh, lee morgan's standing and not falling which is so great is like asking you to like list out and share with like a friend who is also a magical worker those moments of belief belief to like anchor yourself back in the oh yeah oh yeah that did happen there's mm. no way that i can justify or explain that away with something that's like practical or like you know like i literally saw that spirit or i literally woke up with the with the mark on my body where i had had the dream of the like there's like all these those moments that are so integral and uh that yeah, I, I really I love I love that that point. And and uh that and that ties back into also like having that group, like that container that's slightly larger than you that are also people because when those experiences happen across people, yes, like that's a whole other level of totally. it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, we need we need 
others, right? Like this is a, you know, I would sound like a Libra broken record talking about this, but like, we don't exist well in the vacuum, right? Like mm. we need to be able, and it can be very dangerous to, to see yourself through the other because there's always a distortion and a reflection, right? But like so much of the time we are able to give ourselves permission to leave certain things because other people experience something similar or are able to validate it, whether through divination or through being there or through some kind of like, oh yeah, no, like I scried you and I can see these things. And you're like, oh fuck, I didn't even tell you that that is what mm. in this particular dream or in this particular vision or this particular work, like those are the things that I think really do sustain us. And, and uh, we see that really explicitly with the amount of nurturing and caretaking and protection that Nightbreed share for each other, right? And everyone's got a lot of really different personalities. They literally wear them on their skin, right? Like there's <laughs> no, no, but the the functionality and the preservation of them is like the common and shared even baphomet at the end right like has this whole speech about how it's going to be boone's job to take care of everyone now and he knows it he's mm -hmm. like oh i fucking caused this mess it is now also part of my like responsibility this is part of my destiny to be this figure now for others and there's such a like almost like two on the nose tied to the witchcraft there too with the devil pact stuff right like mm -hmm. literally referring to, to baphomet as, a, as the baptizer at different periods of time or uh the this quote that i also have pulled up by lylesburg where he says tonight you leave the natural world behind the life you will lead uh, the, the life that you've led will be a dream the blood of baphomet knows all truths are you prepared to be judged by the god the tribes of the moon embrace you like come on like what that's that's like almost out of a Gerald Gardner book, you know, like <laughs> there's something that's so on the on the nose about that or even like traditional hunting craft ways in different parts of England, too. Like the 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 verbiage. I mean, I have my own speculations and beliefs in particular about Clive Barker, because when you look at his whole corpus of work, right, you're like, this dude is like too in touch with the with the experience of being witch with a capital W for this to just be like, I'm a horror writer, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but this in particular is, is just, it feels like it's resourced in folklore or, it, mm. you know, in a way that if it isn't, man, was he just getting whispered in his ear the whole time, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he is some sort of conduit like directly. I Absolutely. think he's always walking in the imaginal and just has been one of those people that's been lucky enough to just let it spill forth. Yeah, and build a career out of it prolifically. Yeah, uh, it, and um, I mean, this sort of wraps back into like sort of this discussion we were also having about social media and where things are. Like Clive Barker was such a dominant influence in, I guess it was like late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, like like in pop culture that like I don't know if we're gonna get someone like him again exactly. Uh, yeah, that 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 would have like because I remember. I saw Nightbreed in the theaters and I, there was a chain of films that were all done by Clive Barker that had been adapted. And like, he was such a, like, he's kind of, he's kind of between a horror and a fantasy writer, honestly. Yeah. And um, he was such a dominant force for that little period of time. Totally. Uh, and uh, I don't know, is anyone having that kind of influence now? I don't know that they are. I really, I really want to be able to say yes. Like, I really yeah. want that, but like, I can't think of some like the 
Clive Barker's or the Stephen King, right? Like the people that are churning out these works that get adapted into the into film and then become our tropes for what were, right? Like yeah. looks like. Um, so much of that was established by, I mean, I feel like it happened, it's still happening sort of more on the fantasy level because we see, you know, like George R. R. Martin, someone who's like contemporary bringing of these different sort of uh, shows or stories to the to the fore but i don't feel like the same thing is happening i mean that's not to say there isn't incredible horror that's still coming out yeah. it's being written by folks i mean i think like um jordan peele's a really great example of that but i don't think there are right people don't seem to feel the same draw to reading books in the same way either though you know and that I mean, I'm not trying to say that from like, a, mm, I love books way, because like, I don't do it the way I used to when I was a teenager, you know, either. Uh, I feel like a lot of the times when I'm reading, it's for reference at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that is also part of the cultural shift that we see by people that just want to be able to perceive or watch things as opposed to read a thing. But I would love, I would love for a new, like a, a new Clive Barker to come into the fore. And if someone's listening to this and they know of who those people are, I would also really love those recommendations because I would love to find some some new work along those lines, especially on that what I think set Clive Barker aside was this emphasis on the body horror component too, right? Yeah. Because with with Stephen King or, you know, uh with like people like Dean Coot, like that whole particular amalgam that churned out, you know, horror book after horror book. They're they're monster stories, right? But the monster, I mean, sometimes the monster is internal too, but like it's also external as opposed to like so much of Clive Barker's stuff was like, there's a monstrous change happening in my own body and I don't understand it. I don't have control over it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. which I, I think the internal process of that through his writing and then what to me felt like almost a nauseating accuracy in describing the the relationship between humans and spirits and how those interactions go. Like, again, by and large, my my framework, everyone thinks when I'm talking about stellar witchcraft that I'm talking about, you know, like Tolkien kind of elf related stuff. And I'm talking about like Cenobites again. I'm talking about these weird, strange alien priests a lot of yeah. times. Uh, and I I would love to see more more of that. And I would not be surprised based off of us shifting into the age of air more and more, uh, astrologically speaking, and with like the influence of like Pluto going into Aquarius. Um, if we shift in particular into a uptick in space related horror again, like that comes back. It's always been there. Um, we did see a lot of it, I think, especially in the, the late 80s and early 90s, too. But I, I think we're going to see way more of it um, mm. over the next, like, 10, 15 years. I'm all about it. I really like uh, I really like. there's been some cool, like, uh, cyberpunk from some indie authors that I really like coming out later. Um, I really like uh, a lot of the Broken River stuff. There's, like, um, Broken River books. They have, like... Um, there's like inner city Lovecraftian. Like, oh, cool. Um, and some cyberpunk stuff. And two of the authors are doing like a serialized Patreon thing now. Um, oh, awesome. Losak and uh, J. David Osborne. And they're doing like, one of them is doing Samurai Jesus and the other one is doing Ronin Trash. And Oh my God. 
like futuristic cyberpunk like like these guys are like total renegade like dropped out of the mainstream uh literary world and are just like being imaginative like like teenage kids like it's, it's i awesome. love that um i think yeah, that sounds cool that kind of stuff i think is where like uh the novel uh uh j david osborne just wrote has like uh i haven't read it yet but he's i'm super excited too it's like he's got people doing body modifications uh in a, in a city in the future that's surrounded by like tornado tornadoes that are alive wow and like like so people identify as like a, a deer so he gets antlers installed and you know that kind of thing um yeah it's, it sounds it sounds like uh you might be into that. that's fucking awesome yeah i love that i'm trying really hard to like get back in i realized that i'd done the same thing for like a few years i'd done nothing but like read magic books yeah. And like, like learn, really try to put myself through my own education and like fill in as many gaps as I can on my own. And like, I got to the point where it was like, I forgot story matters. Yes. 100%. And so that's like, that's like where I'm at now is trying to read like a teenager again, like to yes. get excited about stories and to also like, even if I just scrap them, like I have the same problem as you, I'm like, I get like 50 ideas that I think are solid gold in the course of a day. And it's like, I don't have the fucking capacity to do all <laughs> like I'm a Libra son. So like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I get the ideas. I don't know what the fuck to do with them all, but like a few of them stick. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to like also write from that mind frame, like, write yeah. like, uh, like Goonie style feeling stuff and just like get into this, like, fuck the adult stuff remember what was fun and cool and like yes and don't make excuses for why you like what you like like <laughs> totally yeah it's it's really it's interesting how like losing that thread can be a terrifying thing when you realize you've lost it a little bit like Absolutely. like what is it that i like what is it what are the things that make me feel like because <gasps> it turns out there there isn't very much going on film-wise at all that will do that these days like it just it feels so floppy and and flat and dead but like I think that there's going to be um a lot more of the written word in the next few years like actually mattering again I think people are just so burned out and so many ideas have just been abused that uh, totally that I think people want a refresher from yeah yeah people often ask me like what books should they read for having a better grasp over astrology or witchcraft or whatever. And I just always, I tell, I tell them like, read fairy tales, read folk stories, read fantasy, horror, science fiction. Uh, the, the need to consistently have reading feel like useful, like, like that in like in this even goes beyond reading. Like this is for like all media you consume. Right. I'm like, look for, look for yourself and others and what you're pursuing and you'll be able to do everything better. Like, and I love what you brought brought up about like what did I used to read like what were the things that you know when I was a, a teenager that I how did how did you what were the things you looked to to be able to understand yourself to define mm -hmm. yourself to cultivate identity from or locate yourself within like the macrocosm that we sort of float nebulously within right those are those are always the anchors uh in whatever kind of uh storm that we're navigating that bring us home into whatever the fuck got us to be where we are now um that that's part of the reason why i've been on such a big hellraiser kick lately because i noticed 
again, the more um, porous my work was, the more people noticed it, right, or observed it, I wanted to make sure that I didn't start to change it specifically to suit other people's expectations. So I, I went back to help, like, where did it all start for me? Where did my understanding of what spirit work, of what magic, of what witchcraft, of what space-related stuff, of what all this stuff looked like, right? And it was being a teenager and watching Hellraiser. It was being a teenager and reading uh, Clive Barker, or Harlan Ellis, like all these different types of folks that talked about the the internal world as much as the external world and helped me understand who I was in it. So I, I, I'm a big fan of what you're saying there specifically about not reading magic things. If you want to do magic, right? Like yeah. obviously it learn tools, be safe, blah, 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 or don't, you know, that's up to you too. But, but the creative spark is the initiating spark of everything that we do. And I've, I've started making, I mean, quote unquote music. It's just like hainted sounds, but still anything that starts occupying or um, stimulating a different part of the brain than you're used to using is so generative and so nurturing. And you might even find out, like I've had a couple moments where I was like, oh, I'm in touch with something that was meaningful and excites me again. And now I realize like I need to sloth off some of these old identities or old ideas that I've been holding on to to pursue what's alive. Like the only thing that's really worth that libidinal investment is what makes you feel like alive, right? That aliveness that, oh my God, I'm on fire, right? Or, oh my God, yeah. the lightning strike. Or, oh my God, I'm welled up again with that feeling. This is what it's like to be connected to something that is different or bigger than me. And I have to chase this because this is how I know I'm on the right path. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's like what people feel in your work. Like it's that lightning, it's that fire. That's like, that's what drives it. And when you're excited about it and that's real, like yeah. that's what people want to see, you know? So yes. that, that, that's like where your livelihood comes into the, into play where like, there's that, that fear you were saying earlier about like jumping into new territory. But if you didn't, you would just stagnate. People would feel totally. it. Like, like people, yeah. feel it, you know, like it was yeah. that way when I was a musician, like if I, if I tried to stick to a style or tried to like be self-aware about what I was creating, like that was, that was always a disaster. It was like, no, like, I mean, it wasn't the healthiest way, but like, I would always just like get fucked up and then like yeah. pour out some shit that would be like, oh, this is, this is good. I actually, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, get out of the way, but like learning totally. the way, uh, you know, through discipline is an entirely different thing. Totally. Yeah. And to, I mean, it's, it's what makes it, what makes life worth living for us, right. Is chasing that sort of uh, the high of, of, of connection or of especially connecting to your participation in something bigger than you. Right. That feeling of like, Oh, this is it. Fuck. This is real. And that's, that's I, people the, like, want that. That's like where the, sorry, that's the, where the addictive uh, impulse belongs. Yes. Like it because you can't, yes. you cannot kill it. Like, you can't. <laughs> you, you have to reframe it. You have to harness it. Like you have to um, strength card that shit. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people respond to it because other people are, I think everyone is seeking that feeling. Well, I don't want to generalize, obviously. Most people are seeking that feeling. And when they recognize it in someone else, it reminds them that they themselves are capable and have felt it. And people are attracted. So I think also the courage it takes to allow yourself to um, again shed some of those old skins that become tight and restrictive and chafe against you. And even though allowing yourself to be uh, perceived or revealed 
clean that that new skin feels so vulnerable, feels so uh, almost uh, paralyzing to be perceived in. It, it it's uh, it's fucking shiny to others, right? Because it 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 is something worth emulating. It's courage. It's courage to do that. Yeah, and there's there's so much support that comes out of the woodwork when that when you when you have that courage. Yeah. Like there's there is a divine, almost like saintly sort of thing that carries you. Um, and there are there's like a retinue that notices when you have that courage. Yeah. My my wife uh, always says the gods favor the the interesting or the entertaining. Yeah. Totally. Like that, that courage is the most like you you light up and it's like yeah well yeah I, i'll every time i do something where i'm like this is it this is the end of my career this is going to be too weird or too whatever <laughs> i'm always then immediately like met by people especially people i wouldn't even expect to support being like oh this is cool and i'm like really because i was like expecting the tarn and feather in and everything you know for for it and so i always encourage my mentees or my friends, et cetera, to like take take the, the leap or the risk, right? This is even about minute things like raising your prices, you know, on things. I mean, people stay at the same price point for, for materia or readings for, for too long too, right? Like the 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 you you showing confidence and valuing what you have to offer is the first sign people look to about whether or not they should be paying attention to what mm-hmm. you have to offer, right? Like you you valuing yourself and you believing in the value of what you have to offer is a huge green flag to a lot of people. Um, staying stuck because you're afraid of not being received, even though I totally relate to that feeling and have remained in that place for longer than I should have in the past. Um, but that is repellent mm-hmm. to a lot of folks as well, you know, that can they can sense your discomfort, you know, like there's nothing more monstrous than the initiation uncompleted. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it also, it, it, part of the thing with the prices is it's, it, you raise it and actually it'll filter out. That's a yes. filter too. It'll filter out people that aren't as serious about what it is you're trying to offer. Yeah. That's another way that to, to reframe and look at it too. Um, yeah. It's, that's a struggle. That's always a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Don't wear your clothes over the hedge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, my suspicion too is that, uh, is like every time you're, you're, you're confronted with that fear, it's, it, you're, you're never like, you're never about to be, well, like, I'm going to quit all this and become a ventriloquist comedian. That's, that's my next. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. It's usually, yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll see how people handle it when I say that I'm quitting what I'm doing to start writing uh, Hellraiser novels. So, (laughs) (laughs) guys, but (laughs) I hope you stay with me. (laughs) Um, so I think maybe we should talk about eating people for a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) I mean, let's talk about it. I don't mean let's actually do it. No, Just kidding. Uh, unless ooh. everybody brought a snack, though, right? So we can at least pretend. <laughs> um, that was a, yeah. That was a really uncomfortable silence for some reason. Um, <clears throat> like just out of sight. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. No one can see the video in the in the stream of this. I could eat whatever no. I want. Pulls out turkey jerky. I'm just <laughs> those are spare ribs. Um. Uh, um we can oh sorry i just i just feel like if switching to ravenous we can actually open 
with the the quote on the opening screen because it's such a nice uh, hinge point from the uh, discussion of Nightbreed, which was a Nietzsche quote saying, he that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster, uh, which I felt was like a really, I mean, there's a lot of corollaries, right? But I loved it. That was the tongue in cheekness of the whole film is so special, but like opening with that too. And then I forget what the second quote was, but it was like a funny thing about like eat, just eating or whatever too, like as a pop quote. Um, such a such a strong opening, such a strong opening. And the uh, the score is absolutely incredible. Like the music. Oh yeah, this yeah. Yes, yes. Lord me, the whole time I was just like, it's so brilliant. It's like this weird, minimal like. Like it's so janky that you you almost feel like it's this hillbilly backwoods like, but it 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 feels like it's in the wrong time period. Totally. And, and then it's also edited in a way that it feels like it's almost digital music or like, yeah. um, like electronic music in a weird way. So there's yeah, I don't know. I fucking loved it. It felt like a a a, a sick dream. Oh my god, the the weird synthy like i think was it one of the guys from craftwork i keep on forgetting there's like some notable musicians that were involved in it too but it just the amount of having this sort of like goofy like we're walking in the woods vibe to then this like uh inverse like string instrument being played backwards looped over itself discomforting part oh my god it's just seem it's so it has so much personality itself that I listen to that soundtrack when I'm writing sometimes just because it slaps so hard. It felt like uh, Devo, like Devo covers uh, uh, in, in Io Morricone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah. I, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I was. I was. Um, I was actually like, is this a is this a Mark Mothersboro? Because <laughs> it sounds it sounds like some weird thing he would make. You're like, uh, that's specifically that Devo. Yeah, <laughs> it goes so hard the whole time too, and it's so different at different points as well. Like, especially for uh, a soundtrack, right? That is, it, it's not so often. I feel like soundtracks support a film, but they rarely uh, are memorable, like inherently on their own. And maybe I'm saying that because I'm ignorant to things but i feel like there are multiple points where i'm i'm watching that film i'm just like fuck this sounds so good like the music which i i i just don't feel like i do that a lot with films i think maybe the other the last one i did that with was titan i don't know if you guys saw titan when uh, it came out oh no. so, that soundtrack is amazing too uh but yeah the whole time there's just moments where it's like i don't even care what's actually happening on screen at this moment, I just like am like swaying to and headbanging mm. to the to the dissonance of it. It's so tense. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the best ones uh, both complement and merge with the film, but then also are so good that they you can take it away and it'll still absolutely let, yeah. Uh, the last one that I think that really got me that way was um, uh, fucking Mad Max Fury Road. The soundtrack. Oh, that, that was, was so yeah, goddamn, that, was, that was a good soundtrack. It's so goddamn propulsive. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but th this movie overall, like Rabbit, I've all right. It's funny, Brian. You've never seen Nightbreed. I've never seen Ravenous. I've oh, never shit. watched this before, uh, and um, I was 
yeah it threw me the soundtrack threw me for a loop but then also how like <laughs> silly it could be yes it was and then <laughs> and then and then there's also it's described a, as whimsical or whatever like when you look at the genres it says like whimsical or something. <laughs> i forget what it was it was some term or where it's like not what you would assume would be associated with like a cannibalism related yeah. film. <laughs> not one without Tim Curry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just seems right. Yeah, it does a really good job balancing the humor though without it being like um like it isn't a comedy, right? But it's no, funny. Yeah. And that's that's such a hard balance to strike where it's so sort of irreverent and like self-aware uh and even even it was at the end right where they're both in the bear trap and i forget what exactly uh he says but he was like he's like well played or nice or something like some little yeah offhand little thing quip, yeah. Just like it's just so fun and robert carlisle is such a gem like that actor is so special whether it's train spotty or whether it's him playing rumpled silt skin like there's just something I can't get enough of him. I see him on the oh, screen. I filmed a foe for me, and I'm like, oh, I wanna, I wanna eat him. Like he's just so good. <laughs> his acting is so good. His delivery is so good. He looks so like wily. You know, he's just got this like springy, wily, you know, pointed features. And I'm like, that dude is got some weird fairy ancestry thing going on with him. Like that dude is not completely human himself. The the thing coming through him is like far too feral, far too rewilded. Yeah. And I think it yeah. just shows up so good in this. He's got yeah, like, like a score of plus six at a base level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the scene where they're at the cave and um they're exploring it, and then he's sort of to the side, like acting like, like an a eager yeah an eager dog <laughs> like uh, do i bite now do i bite now yeah. or do i wait what am i doing this is so dirt. yeah <laughs> oh what's really funny though okay so it this came in the same week that i read about robert svoboda and Vimalananda and like or read him his writings about Vimalananda and and like i was just like the door opened to uh a gory stuff oh boy I was like, oh, why does this feel like, uh, like, <laughs> I, I grew, you know, like, it's really like, I was like crying reading it and yeah. having all these strange, and then like, I watched this and he's doing that thing and by the cave and I'm just like, I get it. I get it. I know you. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're so hungry. Just give him a little snack. He's just excited. And, but like the, the, like letting go that, that just that kind of wild, uh, is like very near and dear to my heart not the eating people necessarily although who knows uh what we get into in our past lives <laughs> <laughs> well it, he has to play he's he's three different roles in it right like he starts off in one capacity uh as the the preacher or whatever the the pre right the tra priest traveling with them then he is, re or I guess it's more like four. Then he's like himself, the fucking Wendigo, the, you know, skinwalker, flesh eater. And then he is uh, Lieutenant Ives. And suddenly he's like sophisticated, demure, nonplussed about everything. And then he's like himself, right? Which is almost, I think, one of the, the most complimentary nods to like a Hannibal Lecter figure where he's like 
so uh, ferocious and so like hungry and sadistic and yet so cultured and so well-mannered and you know like they're they're cooking the proper you know stew and they're sitting with their legs crossed and he's wearing the night you know and he's got his cuffs buttoned right while he's eating these things and speaking rather existentially and philosophically about like the teleology of eating people and like the, the justifications of these things which you you're listening to and you're like that makes sense, you know? <laughs> like, he has that whole lecture uh, where he is talking about, Amer like, America being this cannibalizing force, right? Like, and consuming without discretion is this metaphor for the gold rush that we're seeing in the wake of the, was it, the Mexican-American War. Uh, and, like, he's like, we're just following suit. Like, I think he uses that, that term. Like, we're just, this is what America, and which is, like, a really great commentary, too, on, like, a socio-political level as well. Uh, that I think is like hard to refute the cannibalizing nature of, of America, right? But the the way he argues these things is like a spin doctor or like a lobbyist. You're sitting there and like, even if I didn't already have a fascination with cannibalism, I would have I would have been like, he just makes sense. Like, he, it's just <laughs> a good point. It's just, he's right. Like, and, and you look at the conditions they're living in and how, uh, desolate and remote and how hard it is to survive in a, a winter there or whatever, right? And it's like, yeah, just, okay. Understanding it. And yeah, it, it just, uh, well, the the funny comment that George, the First Nations guy that was on the property has too about what uh, the white man eats the body of Jesus Christ every Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in terms of like the Wendigo eating human flesh and this sort of corollary like wh why do we choose to have um such judgments or vindications about certain things in preference to our own like cultural narratives when i mean all of it i was like i'm sold you know like i'm like sign me up give me the bowl you know yeah it's such a good movie it, it was one of those I, I loved it way back in the day and then i just kind of forgot about it for years and this time when i watched it i got to the end it was almost it was bittersweet it was like this was just too good of a setup and too good of characters and too good of casting and yeah. everything. It had such a perfect vibe all around. It all matched itself. It just did such a good job at everything it tried to do. And it's like this, I wanted more. Like I wanted like, yes, like a full series uh, or like uh, something. And then, and then I went on Netflix and there's like a new show called Ravenous. And I like my heart skipped a beat and I had <laughs> nothing to do with that. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, where was the like um Hulu original series of just like Ives and like just them like sitting around cooking and eating? Like I would have watched that homesteading show in a second, right? Like <laughs> I would have done oh I would have hook line and sinker been bought up for that that uh Twitch stream, you know, like whatever it was to just have a little bit more the right and I'm, but also man am I glad. Man, am I glad that they made a perfect film and didn't make a sequel or didn't like because yeah. technically we don't know that they died. Right. Like at mm -hmm. the end we have I think her name is Martha and she sees them through the door and she's like, nope, you know, like, I don't want that. I want no part of that. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. Right. But you don't we don't know for sure. They, they could have easily written a, a sequel that would not have done it justice, but they allowed 
perfection to remain as such. And so I will always give them like immense credit for that, even if that movie could have been four hours and still not been long enough for me. Mm. Maybe I want to listen to a whole masterclass just of fucking Robert Carlyle's Ives talking about the virtues of, of cannibalism. I would be fine with a, a graphic novel. That would be good. Oh, that, w- that could be great. Like, yeah, it would it- like him, him just doing what he's doing for a long time before he ever runs into. Totally. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe the sequel is them eventually finding their way to Midian, and then they're. Uh... Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! There's only one world. Over. Oh my god! Would that work? Almost. I don't know if it quite worked, but it's there's like. There's a flesh eater uh, yeah. overlap for sure. That's yeah. real. That's there. It's the I would job. feel bad for the night breed if <laughs> they had to deal. I think by the time 1990 or 1999 or whatever, or whatever, what was this movie? What was Night Breed? Oh, shit. When did it come know. out? I think it was the early. Hold on, I can look that I up. It was 99. It's like eight. Yeah. I think it's late 80s, mid 90s, somewhere in there. I thought it was in, at the end of the decade. Um, <laughs> But uh, that by that time, 1990, 1990. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But by that time, those guys would have been eating people in California. Who knows where they'd be, right? <laughs> it would be like this epic, like long ass date. They, they'd be like, uh, almost kind of like interview with a vampire. Cause they kind of, yeah. but, the but, only- but they like, end up in Calgary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, we ate our way through too much of America. We decided to become Canadian and immigrants. I think they're like, they're like, like uh, hiding out in a timeshare and like, uh, like the Poconos or something. Oh my god! It'd be so. <laughs> they're just renting out the Airbnb and just eating the the guests. <laughs> we can order pizza again. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe when I finish rewriting the Hellraiser series, uh, I'll take on the uh, the outline for the treatment for the uh, sequel to Ravenous. I'm never gonna, <laughs> never gonna do it. I can't. I can't. I don't even have the motivation. Most days to respond to emails, but yeah. it's a nice dream. I think I'd actually seek out and read some Ravenous fanfic if it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be perfect for the job and I'm going to entreat her now to do it so that we have some way of keeping the memory alive because I just I'm like actively trying to convince my partner to dress uh, as Ives for Halloween one year because I, I just I have perhaps some other fantasies to fulfill but uh, <laughs> if I suddenly disappear you will know that they've come to fruition Uh Okay, I probably should not have said that on a recording. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got full in mouth. Ooh, oops. That's okay. She uh, got what she wanted, y'all. She got I what told, she wanted. I told uh, Gary Noriyuki that if I <laughs> if I die anytime like violently, he's he's got permission to put some of me in amulets. So <laughs> he's gonna. I mean, I love Gary too. He's gonna he's gonna make good on that. So you better <laughs> you better like make sure your wife knows and have it set up like. No, it, it's it's impossible. some sorcerer is going to show up and be like, "Bones, please," and no. she's got to hand them over. It's it's impossible. They, they, I mean, they 
they wouldn't be able to here. Uh, it's 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 so illegal to to have body parts. Oh no, I'm I'm stealing Brian's corpse and and shrink wrapping the entire thing, and it's just yeah, gonna be an amulet backpack that I wear around. <laughs> this is gonna be like when they when there's a meeting to read your will aloud, it's gonna be a full on brawl over your, <laughs> over your human remains. Yeah. No, he promised, and everyone's gonna be pissed off at you because they're gonna realize that you promised everyone <laughs> access, and there's only so much of you to go around. I have sown the seeds of discord even in my death. (laughs) I want all of you. Uh, They'll be all in a tizzy, and I can possess them all at the same time. Yeah, and then you just you just siphon you just siphon all that energy off of them, and you become increasingly powerful. No, I told I told I told you know whoever puts me in an amulet, they gotta elevate me first. Like, make me an angelic one, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're like you don't you don't want me as a, a spirit around you the way I'm gonna be, man. I've got some baggage, you know, like me on a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Cut a cut a few cut a few of these bricks off my feet so that I can float up a little bit. Let me do a little something for you. Because otherwise there's just gonna be a lot of crying. I hope you're ready to be ghost sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What what made you originally put the two movies together? I thought that they were both really good uh, compliments for the exploration of monstrosity and the witch, right? Because Mm. in so much folklore, uh, the idea of cannibalism or like witches, witches in so many different cultures are also inherently like the if you are a witch, you also are assumed to cannibalize, whether it's literally eating human flesh or whether that is uh, the spirit of other people that you're cannibalizing. Um, but I thought that, that the exploration of that was where there's something really humanizing or not humanizing. There's there's a way in which Nightbreed um, cultivates empathy towards the monstrous yeah. other. Right. It helps you identify with it. And I feel like on the on the counter of that, we have Ravenous, which I mean, you still find yourself rooting. I mean, or I find myself rooting for you know ives and the pro- but like you're still like okay well this is di- like this is explicitly monstrous right this is explicitly yeah. an exploration um and even even the way they tie in the wendigo folklore right or the idea of these uh of, of what the consumption of human flesh does to the spirit of a person right it might give them strength and power and all these other ways but it, they also forfeit their soul and so much of that is also deeply, deeply woven into so much of the uh, of the corpus of witchcraft, folklore, speculation, anthropological studies, beliefs, etc. So I think that they weigh like it's a double feature almost. They weigh out on some you know dormant scale like what what and how this can look, and that like it can be something that is sympathetic uh, in its own ways. And it can be something that is maybe not sympathetic and you wouldn't be able to imagine yourself doing it at all. But these are both ways in which monstrosity manifests and communicates its otherness. Um, and they are both so steeped without even trying to be in the in the in the folklore that has to do with witchcraft, that it just seemed like natural. And the real answer, I just gave you a very like cerebral, like, oh, this sounds good. But the real answer is I just wanted to talk about both. And I'm a Libra and I couldn't decide. <laughs> <laughs> all here's valid. how i justify all it. very valid <laughs> uh, i thought you summed it up perfect when you said uh like two sides of the witch yeah I think that's, like gonna be the title because that's that's <laughs> love it um, i love that yeah because there's yeah there's the 
there's a way to be, the, you know, that kind of wild without forfeiting your soul and eating other people too. Totally. Uh, and not necessarily being part of the group, right? Like being that more solitary uh, cave dwelling hermit stuff. But I think that the, it exemplified really well, just like the extremes of that otherness. And like, uh, it, it helps to see the extremes to to really like uh, wrap your head around the concept, I think. Absolutely. And the more other you become the like i think i think that rabbit is such a really good job because we don't we don't meet ives uh prior right to him being what he what he becomes we meet him after he's like already a year into it or, or something i think is, is the timeline he gave and it's such a i think eloquent depiction of how the more other you become the less you think like a person and are beholden to this like Rousseauian, you know, co like social contract, the more you begin to think like that other thing. Right. And with that logic and with maybe a lack of the the what, what we find with the protagonist who, whose name I'm blanking on, of course, in this moment, uh, the Guy Pierce character. Right. Where he he's so fresh in it and be out of survival, he does it. But, you know, like he's bucking against it. He is like refusing internally to allow himself even though there's a whole pre precedent set of him being like a coward who like already doesn't want to usually confront or do the right thing right that's how he survives you know we get that context in the beginning of the film but we see him really um combat another really great example of this and i won't give any spoilers because it's all really recent movies infinity pool is another really good example if you guys have the time of i think like the idea of these monstrous initiations and in witchcraft and the the way the spirit is in conflict against some of these transformations, especially the human parts of the self, buck mm -hmm. against the witch self. Um, but yeah, I think that he, I was, the, the, the grace and comfort through which he occupies what we might see as a rather alien or deviant way of perceiving the world, but is so similar to when you have conversations with many spirits, the way they would describe existence or currency or engagement or interaction i think that's that's really relevant too for not just people that identify as or are uh not just for people who identify as or feel themselves to be or know themselves to be the witch but for people that uh have been sort of fed a sanitized idea of what a witch is based off of the popularization of the term where it is no longer monstrous or other or abject uh but rather like a thing that you can create a wellness brand around um, <laughs> and so that's why i wanted like movies that like focus on i mean if, if we could have done a third one it also would have been hellraiser but that would have been its own thing so i would have talked at you for like six hours and i could never willingly do oh that you're gonna come someone. back okay okay <laughs> <laughs> is one then because i i'll you you thought I had quotes before. I literally in my Google Docs, uh, I'll take a screenshot and show it to you guys later to prove it. But like, have like a nine page document just of quotes from <laughs> that I like was like, oh, this is relevant. I'm gonna use this at some point. Um, but yeah, I think that they they like let's let's bring back some of the gravitas. Let's bring back some of the this is a soul altering thing that like you don't get to to go back on when you decide it doesn't work like when you're in it like that part of you is gone like you just have to like you have mm -hmm. to now deal with what it means to be more than one thing in a world that prioritizes you being one thing mm -hmm. um and i think that both of them also speak to the longing to to be around those 
that are other like even Ives in the film did not want to be alone for this process, right? Like he mm. kept people alive that he very well knew could could kill him or sabotage his plan because he wanted the the connection in the community. And there is so much that is alienating and isolating about uh, the role of the witch. And there are many things that even surrounded by the closest of community, you're totally isolated and alone still in, in that experience. But I think it does speak to that, the yearning and the craving, and perhaps maybe some of the more nefarious ways we go about trying to be connected to people when we feel other um, in that way, or the the desperation to even propel or compel. So this is like a narrative you've seen so many vampire films too, right? Like, uh, I'm lonely. I want company. Like, I will thrust this terrible curse upon you that means that I have someone to talk to over dinner, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that both films have that have an emphasis on like perhaps this secret yearning for connection too that that is is part of the inherent loneliness of of which. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, the big the big difference being like Boone and Nightbreed. There is a part of him that wants to take the wants to take yeah. the initiation and wants to be a part of it. So there's a whereas uh, Ed Exley, Guy Pierce, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it, he's he's completely resistant and he's an yes. unwilling participant in this uh but but uh it's interesting because it's like that loneliness is such that you were you were willing to even deal or create someone who's going to hate you forever yes just to have just to have that Absolutely. companionship yeah i mean that's half of what all of Anne Rice's novels are built on right like that's half yeah. of what what so many of the is like it gets, it gets, uh, you can have the power and the strength, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to get fucking lonely. Like that's yeah. perhaps maybe one of the, I, I don't want to relinquish this or or condemn this to being a human quality because I believe we see it in the animal kingdom and we believe it, we see it in the spirit world as well. But like perhaps even in this, this avenue, and of course there are people that identify as witch and this does not, does not relate to but for the most part that's like a, a human thing that hangs on right is the desire to share an experience with someone the desire to not be alone in something those are like perhaps the the blessings and the curses of our humanness that we cannot vanquish from the threshold of desire even to our own undoing or the mutual undoing with that person too because you never see these situations end up like with a happy ending one or both people either end up having to kill each other or like broody and miserable and separated and like sort of pining and resentful for you know 300 years or something too when you were saying that like about uh you know it, it seems like it's like one of the last things to go from your humanity like yeah. it's, it's the hanger on and i was getting these like images of of like the sinew that sticks to the bone that just won't come off like so you can't like get the fillet like you can't nod off <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, totally yeah oh, that's such a great visual of that experience too and i mean there's so many other places we could go with it right especially in ways that you or shouldn't necessarily talk about in in regards to the idea of the, of, of cannibalism or consuming like right we have two types of cannibalism we have endo cannibalism the consumption of those we love and we have exo cannibalism the consumption of enemies right and those are and about to reveal that I know a little bit too much about the anthropological uh, techne and episteme of cannibalism, uh, but re ready for some of the, the followers to, to jump ship. But I mean, the semantics therein are, are really complex as well. Like 
cannibalism is so enmeshed with love and desire, right? Like the desire to consume the other is so, I mean, at least for some people, definitely not myself, not naming myself here in this at all, but like uh, the desire to consume that which we love, right? Like the, whether that's through like biting or these, the, the, um, I think the, the primal desire to like unhinge the jaw and like swallow the lover. Right. And even the act of, uh, of intercourse itself is like a cannibalistic act. If we look at, uh, like the cunt being a mouth, right. And the phallus being like, like there's, there's an act of consumption that happens through that. And then we also have the exo cannibalism of the desire to drain, to devour, to consume those that have wronged us, those that have betrayed us, those that have hurt us. Like you have wounded me or you have done this thing and I will grow stronger from devouring that which in you, which was able to hurt me. Like those things are so inherent, not just in folklore about witches or the films or the novels we see, but it is it, spoken of profusely in philosophy. It's spoken of uh, consistently in psychoanalysis. These are monstrous things, but they're deeply human experiences. And like none of us get away from at least being influenced and colored in certain ways. And when we confront these things with films like Ravenous, where I do believe that most of us put in a certain in that position would end up would end up consuming the human flesh before we choose to die. Right. Like not everyone, but at least 70 percent of people. Maybe that is like a bold mark. I'm probably going to hear about. Like, well, it really insults you to do it. But I do think that that's the case, right? We've got plenty of psychological studies that show what people are willing to do in order to survive. What what happens then, right? And how much, how, and what extent are you willing to go to to survive? And in what ways then do you ju justify your continued survival, especially once you realize that maybe I kind of like it a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's so much there that speaks to to again, to witchcraft, but there's also so much here that just speaks to being a person, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I forget when it was. It was a while back, but I remember you posted something about uh, eating or, and being eaten, and it, like, it wasn't yeah. until the moment that I realized, like, oh, that's a thing I should pay attention to. I used to, like, fantasize when I was a kid about being eaten by animals. Like, <laughs> that's Helen uh, Helen Sisu is the one who writes about that it's in the text um, Stigmata mm -hmm. and she does the whole thing about desire and the love object and cannibalism and you know Bataya is another one who talks about how cannibalism begins with a kiss you know like the this is uh, I mean that's to be cute. to be sure it's, it's something that's really written about within the French uh, 20th century corpus of critical theory literary theory, et cetera, with a psychoanalytic influence. But it's definitely like out there and prevalent and it's really good. If people are interested in ravenous and they're interested in Campbell, I really recommend those thinkers for understanding how much of an intellectual history has been invested in us trying to figure out why we want to eat the things we love and spit out or still also eat the things we hate, right? And that's that's across the board, man. That's just, that's part of the thing we got to figure out in our lifetime while we, while we walk this earth <laughs> and others. Yeah. It, it's funny because I like only in the last couple of years have I uh, become aware of this term autophagic, which is, oh, yes. which is a healing property. It's your body mm -hmm. eating itself to get yep. rid of like the, and it it's like, uh, well, I mean, 
it's also just like maggots and maggots will eat the disease totally and yeah and like yeah. There, there's also a part of like consuming uh and, and there's there's ritualistic aspects about that too about giving what's no longer needed away like disposing of it so you're not burdened by it anymore absolutely yeah. well even leeches draining bad blood right but um one of my other i'm like love clyde barker my other my other big one right is is david cronenberg and uh his most recent film crimes of the future is such a perfect exploration of the ways and again another fucking witchcraft movie and especially a witch body movie right the exploration of like when we start creating without again without wanting to give spoilers away like what happens when the body starts adjusting to its monstrousness create whether that's creating new things whether that's changing what it can eat due to those things i mean it's so it gets it's hard to talk about without revealing anything but if folks are interested in these films that we've talked about like i cannot all of Cronenberg, but like, well, not all of Cronenberg. There are a couple where you're like, mm, that doesn't need to happen. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Crimes of the Future is just chef's kiss as far as a continuation of this conversation. Like, yeah, what does self cannibalization look like? Right. What mm -hmm. is it? Or what is what the opposite of that thing as well? What happens when we are, are creating excess and so we can't exist within the body in the same way? And we have to become increasingly precarious in how we try and force ourselves into the the mores and the norms and the nomenclature of uh, a shared culture around us, like a homogenous culture. When it comes to uh, eating the self, I always think, how committed are you to self-sufficiency? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want to see yes. any food on that shelf. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you eating your own organs? Because if you're not, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, have you heard of that crazy archaeological site in Germany that's supposed to be like they think the whole thing was just a giant cannibalist cannibal processing center? Oh, my God. I don't think I know about that one. I know there's something that I think is in Scotland or France. Uh, oh, God, I got to look it up. I yeah it's it's like waxane or something as it has a weird name like that um i i know there's at least one metal band that took <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> oh my god of course um but yeah they they a friend my friend who was actually in a metal band was telling me about it he's like yeah they don't there's a lot of evidence they don't want to admit it they don't want to admit that this was a this was just a place of mass cannibalism. They don't want to admit that that's what happened, but the, all the evidence points to it. Germany <laughs> is like, look, we can only like it's not another, <laughs> please not another thing. Like, we're still trying to work on rebranding. Please, we can't also be the cannibalism plays. Yeah, <laughs> like only one stigmatizing association of the atrocities that you know please per one per one country <laughs> no nah, they can they can have some more that's fine as a treat yeah yeah well uh this has been excellent thank you so much for coming uh, we don't want to take too much of your time i know you got clients to get to today um but yeah thank you so much this has been <laughs> really fun this was a, a a blast thanks so much for having me on and being flexible about letting me talk about two but 
actually more like three films for the amount I talked Six, about. Seven, so, eight, you know, maybe. Ty Barker wrote both Nightbreed and Hellbound. You know, like we got we got the there was some connection there, but yeah, this was so fun, and uh, I can't wait to bombard you with more ideas in the future. So, but yeah, not until they're ready to. Come. And not prematurely, just for the sheer validation of expressing them. So. <laughs> you, you utilize the show to its full potential, which is like for people to come on and rant about something they care about that isn't like their normal thing. <laughs> so Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. If there's one thing I know how to do, it's to uh, step on a soapbox. So <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for giving me like demolition capacity to do that so that I don't end up doing it in a way that's actually counterintuitive. It's like a steam vent. Yes, totally. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, um, if if anyone wants to find her, uh, you can tell everyone where to find you and yeah, notes in the show notes. Um, so I tried to keep it as easy as possible. So Instagram is Sasha Ravage. Twitter is at Sasha Ravage. Website, big shocker here, SashaRavage.com. Patreon, Patreon backslash Sasha Ravage. Email. Sasha.ravage.gmail.com. Hopefully, the, all of those will help in some capacity to get you where you're going. Uh, would love to, to keep in touch with anyone else that likes to talk about uh, Clyde Barker things or cannibalism uh, and all, all of the other things that make life worth living, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Space demons and <laughs> cannibalism. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was amazing. You have a you have a great day. You too. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Have a great day. Okay. Ooh, not such a solid uh, solid exit. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. <laughs> they don't. They don't see. They don't. They can't. There's no video, so they don't see you uh, uh, dissipating into black purple smoke <laughs> yeah. and glitter. So <laughs> yeah, they can't. My, my true form. <laughs> I've only seen glasses and lipstick this whole time. This transformed to a ring wraith. <laughs> it's like I must return now. Saruman <laughs> calls. Thomas, it's up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I.